This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Jump Statistical Discovery Software from SAS. Jump, spelled J-M-P, is an easy-to-use tool that connects powerful analytics with interactive graphics. The drag-and-drop interface of Jump enables quick exploration of data to identify patterns, interactions, and outliers. Jump has a scripting language for reproducibility and interfacing with R. Click on this episode's sponsored link to receive a free info kit that includes an interview with DataViz experts Kaiser Fung and Alberto Cairo. In the interview, they discuss information gathering, analysis, and communicating results. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. Happy holidays, everyone. I hope everyone is warm and cozy inside. Uh, one guy who may be a little cozier on the West Coast than I am here on the East Coast is Simon Rogers, who's the data editor at Google, formerly at Twitter and The Guardian and maybe a couple other places. Uh, Simon, <laughs> welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, John. I'm good, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Thank you very much. You're released from the, the oppression of British yoke. So <laughs> I'm, here to, I'm here to celebrate it with you. <laughs> That's right. We're just bringing it all back together. It's just a historical yeah. thing all wrapped back together. How, uh, how are you there? How's Google treating you? Uh, it's, Google's treating me very well. We're being allowed some really cool stuff and um, being given a lot of freedom to, to experiment and innovate, which is great. That's great. And you uh, have a pretty good-sized team there now, right? Yeah, so we have um, – I'm basically part of the Google's News Lab. And Google's News Lab is really about, you know, what can Google do to help the news industry think about its future, you know, with all our kind of expertise and uh, development knowledge and resources and all the stuff that Google has. How can it help news industry think about what's coming next? And the team that um, I work with most closely is around data, Google data, and helping to kind of open that data up to the world and make it easier to use, provide kind of inspiration about cool things to do with it, but also just make it easier for people to get a hold of and tell stories with. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of amazing. I mean, I think there are like 3 billion searches every day. That's an incredible kind of like view outside the echo chamber and the filter bubble that we all we'll live in right and if we can use that data to to tell interesting stories i think that's a really powerful mission to have so let's talk about stories because yeah. uh this was a so big much topic. Um, much overused word obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah and there was a big conversation about it a couple of years ago and then it sort of faded and i feel like at least i've been thinking about it a lot more so when you yeah. think about telling stories with data what comes to your mind and how do you guys approach that storytelling aspect yeah. of google data it's kind of almost become meaningless, hasn't it, the word storytelling now? Because it could mean anything from just like a line chart to, you know, a full-on, a full-on interactive. Yeah. I think, uh, I think we need to find another word. Or I don't know what that word is yet, but I think we're moving beyond that because, you know, there was a time when really all you had to do was make the data easy to interrogate so people could come up with their own tales. I'm trying to find the word to say stories now. <laughs> right. their, their, own, their own way to analyze it and, and, and see what it means for them. And I think we've moved away a little bit from that into these kind of experiences where we guide people, we take people's hand and guide them through. And partly that's because, you know, everything is about kind of instant, right? We want instant. We don't want to spend, maybe we don't have time to spend like half an hour exploring something that's that intricate. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that is a bit of a loss for us because I think the idea of one of the great things to me about 
data opening up and data journalism opening up was the idea that we would be in control of, of what we saw. So, for instance, you know, if, say, I mean, one of the things worked back in the day, back in the day, was this um, uh, a map of, uh, of from WikiLeaks, <laughs> WikiLeaks before the election, yeah. uh, for the, uh, the um, Iraq attacks, where it was basically a map of every single attack in Iraq. And that was that was that did really well. It did really well, but I think because it allowed people to explore the data for themselves in a, in a way that they could understand. Uh, that feels to me still a really important part. I just think that we're we're in this weird place now where people are much more literate about data biz, and just doing a map or something isn't enough to have an impact. You've got to do something really special to have an impact. Well, At the same time, um, I'm not convinced that people want to spend hours and hours and hours playing around with data viz in the way that they did. You know, people want stuff to be delivered straight away. So it's a really difficult thin line to to walk down. So in terms of storytelling, I think I think it's really about um, you know, a lot of content now is based around data. Data journalism is just important, more important now than ever before, I would argue. Um, and yeah, it's it's like it's moving on, it's changing and evolving. You know, it's not new. It's something that's well established in lots of newsrooms now. Um, around the world, and you know, there's some really interesting stuff coming up in the developing world. You know, I'm director of the Data Journalism Awards, and every year we get amazing entries from, you know, from Africa and um, from Middle East and so on. And but at the same time, how do we kind of maintain that excitement that people feel about data journalism? Mm-hmm. You know, within the you know the executive branches of the news of the news industry. Yeah, you know, there's still if you're a working data journalist, there's no career path for you. If like you know, one thing I've discussed with Scott Klein quite a lot is if the data editor leaves um, a newsroom, what happens? If the Metro editor left, they'd be re- they'd be replaced easily. Data editor leaves, like the whole team could fall apart. Yeah. So those those kind of things suggest to me that it's become mainstream without becoming mainstream. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Data journalism is everywhere. Yeah. At the same time, it's like it's still really often just like one or two people in a room scrapping away with like whatever tools they can get hold of. Right, that they're not, uh, they're not a real part of the newsroom yet. In, in some yeah, places, in yeah some they're, they're, part, they're part of the process. I, yeah. I just think that there's not part of, you know, I think I think one of the weird things about working in news industry is there's quite a clear kind of like structure to what people do and what, um, what their career path might look like. Even though, and, you know, within that you get lots of kind of variations. But for a data journalist in the newsroom, I don't think that structure's there in that way. I think it's quite difficult. Yeah, it's interesting uh, because, and, and if you're not a developer, particularly if you're a generalist like me, right? It's not, um, it's not sure. as simple as it. But the people I've talked to, it's interesting because the people I've talked to who, you know, the Times and the Post and the, and the Guardian mm-hmm. and ProPublica, I feel like those groups they bring the developers into the fold as really a yeah. part of the whole news team, and that's why they're so successful is because they're bringing them in. And yet, you probably have too many groups or have them just the way you, you talk about them, sort of isolated off to the side, and certainly. I can tell you from personal experience of different non-data journalism places, but, you know, research places and federal agencies that they are definitely siloed out. Sure. I mean, I always think, I mean, uh, you know, when I'm, oh, I've got a team now of about um, seven people and they're, they're based around the world, right? So mm-hmm. I've got people in uh, London and in Berlin and Paris, as well as here in, on the West Coast and somebody on the East Coast. And, yeah, when when we've been recruiting people for that, I haven't actually been going for developers and analysts. I've been much more going for people who have had data journalism experience mm. because I want people to know what a news story is. 
right. from the news in front of the word story there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The old people to understand, you know, this is this is what the news story is. This is what uh, what's interesting around that because you know that's harder to teach. I think. Yeah, I think I think mm-hmm. I think people can learn skills, and I know people that are te- technically literate, but understanding what a news story is feels to me really powerful and important. Do you feel, in some ways, that um, the the part of the richness of having Google data is that everyone has that experience? It's sort of a shared experience. So while you could show a graph of Google Trends, and maybe the graph isn't the most striking thing in the world. Everybody does a Google search, so everybody has that that yeah. feeling of doing that shared that shared experience. There's like there's there's, there's uh, three things about Google data that I think are really interesting. One of which is obviously it's huge, so that that three billion searches that gives it that sense of ubiquity you're talking about. You know that we all do it. And the second thing about it is it's incredibly honest. I've said this before, but you know we're never as honest as we are with our search engines. <laughs> and that, so so you get you know you're not making a public pronouncement by doing a search in the way you would be by posting something on, yeah. on social media. So there's an honesty to it, which I think is really powerful. And the third thing is this immediacy that's so important that basically as soon as something happens, it's reflected in the way that we search. So we can explore that. I think I mean, you know, we're just scraping the surface of what's possible with that data. We've only had real-time search data for just over a year now, mm-hmm. coinciding with the election campaign. So this is the first kind of Google Trends election. And uh, it's not just things like spikes in searches for Move to Canada. You know, you can see um, completely you know, the, the things that people really care about, the kind of issues that often which weren't talked about during the campaign there. That are big issues around the country. You know, abortion is still a huge issue around the states, in that it wasn't really talked about that much during the campaign. But it will be a big issue, I'm sure, in this presidency. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, gun control are uh, still huge issues out there in the country. But and you can see that through the way that people search. And to me, that's really fascinating because we 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 get a sense of what we think people are, care about, and what we think people know about. But actually, now we know what people care about and know about. But having said that, telling that, using that data to tell stories, interestingly, is 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 new thing. So it's like we're kind of, in some ways, I feel like we're a kind of archaeologists uncovering yeah. weird stuff. But at the same time, you know, there's there's some people who've done some really interesting things. But like CNN just did this um, critical counties project where we gave them county level search data, and that very local level granularity, I think, is really interesting. There's particularly there were a number of counties there where. Clinton was ahead in the polls, but Trump was ahead in search interest, and Trump won those counties, hmm. which to me is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, what's your what's your take on the polling? I mean, it's, it is a data rich area that we've just spent the last yeah. six months sort of like thinking about um, to one degree or another. I mean, do you think Google has process going forward to think about polling in different ways? So um, we don't do predictive stuff with trends, but other people do do it, but we don't. Um, partly because we don't know how. <laughs> yeah, this stuff is new. Yeah, but um, also I think uh, and yeah, and people do do you know there's a there's a Google Consumer Surveys within Google which does kind of you know surveys online, um, yeah, which and 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 yeah, and people like Nate will really enjoy those. So that is there. I think there is something. I feel like I feel like I see this every election. We just had this with Brexit in the UK as well, where before every vote polling is as best the best it's ever been. And then the vote happens and totally throws it all up in the air. People are like, well, you know, the model wasn't right or this wasn't right or we're reading the wrong stuff into the polls. I think uh, and we know more about, we have more people devoting more time to polling reporting in this election probably than ever before. Really? Like, every, you know, you, you couldn't move for analysis of the slightest 
uh, percentage shift in the polls. And yet the margin of error was exactly that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the margin of error was what? Um, so The margin of error was essentially plus or minus infinity. We find out at the end. Right. right? I mean, exactly, exposed. Exactly. Yeah. And, and polls, polling is expensive, right? So I, I, think, I think, you know, there is other data I think is powerful. You know, the idea that a search is just a search, just in inverted commas a search, um, I think is completely wrong. It's a really powerful social signal, but we just don't understand how to interpret that properly yet. Mm-hmm. That, that would be my take on that. I think that it's, and it's probably, I would argue, it's the most powerful social signal because it's unconscious. You know, it's not, you're not telling somebody something, you're not broadcasting it to the world, you're searching for something you care about and are interested in. Mm-hmm. And do you think people are going to respond to that in different ways? I, I kind of feel like a few years ago, it started becoming clear or people were sort of realizing that their search, what they were searching for was being fed back to them through, through ads and through, and through marketing. This is, this is what worries me. We can, we can have our own feedback loop. So for yeah. instance, when, um, when um, we spotted the move to Canada trend, you know, we mm-hmm. just tweeted that out and it was like a, just a small thing. But then that started affecting people searching for move to Canada. Yeah. Right. So you can say, I think I can't feel like it's very temporal. So one of the things we've worked with, recently is we worked with um, you know, Alberto Cairo mm-hmm. and Alberto is working with us now as a kind of consultant art director and um, we've, so we're working with some really great designers and one of whom was Giorgio Lupi and uh, Gabriel Rossi at Accurate and what they made for us was a visualization which showed how people around the world were searching for the candidates in the run up to the election. And it's frozen on November the 8th. You can still check it out. It's at worldpotus.com Um and one of the interesting things about that was they use this kind of blob technique, so everything's very fluid, mm-hmm. because the data itself is very fluid, right? It changes all the time. Right. So it's, it works in the moment, but it's changed by the time that, you know, we've tweeted it or pushed it out there. It's totally dynamic, and it moves all the time. And I guess we want the visualizations that we do to reflect that. So you can really see that with something like, for instance, on Brexit night, one of the, one of the spikes we noticed were people in the UK searching for um, how to get an Irish passport, there might not be very many people, but it was a noticeable spike or an increase. And the next day, the Irish government's website went down, the passport website, because because they weren't used to the traffic. So there is something there which is is really interesting and tells us interest in reflects and tells us about interesting things that are happening out there in the world. But it's like it's a new science. It's like we're the first people to ever have done this. But it's also interesting from from the Google perspective that it's you are both the scientists, but also can affect the outcome, right? And like a traditional researcher, they collect the data, they do something, they can't, uh, sure. they can't impact anything. They can't impact people's behavior in the same way that a Google can where, you know, different algorithms or different things that the, that the company can say, they can sort of impact the way things go, right? Or so I guess, I guess when we don't really deal with that. No, side. right. So, you know, the, al- the al- search algorithms all that stuff are, are way outside my area of knowledge. Yeah. Um, I think there is something really interesting about um, when, when um, you know, I've, in, my, in my life, I guess I've had a few things that have gone viral, and not just at Google, you know, before on this Twitter as well. Yeah. And when you see something go viral, and then that that data point then impacts future data points, just because it's gone viral, yeah. but it's so interesting to me how that happens and how that affects what people do. Yeah, I had sort of as Twitter did something that on. Um, uh, the Charlie Hebdo attacks and John Stewart used it, which is like obviously you know still <laughs> the top. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and um, I mean, that was you know obviously an awful thing. 
But what happened there was that then that became this thing that influenced, uh, you know, the tweets afterwards. It became part of the feedback loop. And the same thing, I guess, if we do something with, with search data that takes off and becomes, uh, you know, like picked up by people, does that then impact on the, the data we're working with? So we're conscious of that. And we, mm-hmm. We're increasingly trying to do things, especially work with visualizations, do things that dynamic change all the time mm-hmm. to show the changing nature of the data. You know, people take snap. I mean, think about all data, like whether it's GDP figures or inflation or unemployment, they're all snapshots in time. Although they're snapshots in time of data that doesn't change very fast. Whereas Google data is a snapshot in time of data that changes really fast mm-hmm. every, every few seconds. So, you know, inflation, inflation is, is X percent on Tuesday. It's probably not going to change that much by Wednesday. Although, you know, stuff happens, right? Sure. But, um, but with, search data you know it's going to change within a minute of you pulling within a second of you pulling the, the figures no that that's right but some of those things like what's interesting about the unemployment rate i think is a good example right the unemployment rate from month to month may not move that much but there's certainly within that month there's a lot of churn some people yeah. are losing jobs some people are gaining jobs and so you look so, at the average i guess the average right, you look at the average but behind it is a lot of stuff going on which we don't ever see and if there were a Google that could track all of that, you would have a, a, a different yeah. picture, right? Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. We're looking, and we do a lot of averaging like that. So we're looking now, right now, the election the election has dominated, like everybody has dominated our lives right. um, for the last year. And you can still see at google.com slash elections, you can see a lot of the stuff that we worked on for that. Um, but right now, we think, we're moving ahead to think about uh, year in search, which is our big kind of annual review. Yeah. And, you know, Google was like, back in the day, was the first company to do these kind of zeitgeisty reports. And, but they, they become the sort of thing that everybody does now. Everybody does like an annual roundup. So what we've tried to do, we, tried, we did this last year for the first time that NewsLab was running it, where um, with the, the data, with the website, it was very much designed to be a kind of a data journalism exercise. Let's take the big events of the year and show what happened in search. This year, we want to do the same kind of thing, but with an interactive visualization where you see these these big moments through through the lens of search over the year and and that is an aggregated thing where we're taking 2016 as a whole but at the same time i think there is something about the dynamism of search i mean yeah we have the attention span of goldfish as human beings right but when we care about something we really really care about it so something happened like you know the election results happen we really really care about it when it's happened and then the next day we move back on to mm-hmm. you know um to kim kardashian or, or whatever it might be I mean, uh, we're very fickle and eclectic people. Mm-hmm. You know, moving on to the next thing right away. Yeah. Um, when you are thinking about telling stories and, and pulling all this data together, are you, um, because you have so much data and there's so much that you could provide to people for them to dive into, are you immediately thinking about interactivity? Is that your first, is that your first uh, instinct? Does it go interactive um, or are you going back and forth? Not always. Static? I mean, I guess... I guess as somebody running a data journalism team, I'm always thinking about the toolkit that we have. Mm-hmm. So the toolkit, you know, the, the data toolkit, what, what's, what's going to work for us? So sometimes it's working with, with a partner, like working, you know, we just did um, this election lab project with ProPublica and, a, you know, we were part of this big coalition of news organizations where we were reporting in real time on voting issues around the country on election day. It was amazing. It's literally one of the best data journalism projects I've ever been involved with. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's powerful because it was very, yeah, you know, everybody working together on this big thing. And um, 
for some of that, so the output, such as it is, in our case, was a couple of things. It was, you know, we had a, a real-time map. You could see, you know, voting problems in real-time. But we also had, you know, that we were part of this bigger system where people were sending tips in. People were using this system called Check, which is kind of amazing to send tips through to local reporters. And so your output becomes one of a number of things. Mm-hmm. And I think increasingly, so I think of, with, in terms of data visualization, you know, bigger projects take more time. And we've, you know, we've had a few projects now. We work with amazing people like from Pitch Interactive, Wes Grubbs' team, Pitch Interactive, and um, Accurate, who I mentioned before. And then we've got a big project coming out in a week's time uh, with Morris Stefana, mm-hmm. um, on, uh, which is, is going to be beautiful and amazing. And um, it's taking uh, searches for food on Google or back to the 2004, which is kind of an amazing thing to see how people's, people's search, for, search for food have changed over time. Things like that, I kind of feel you need to give them the love that they need and do them properly. Yeah. And so they take longer, they take a few months, and, and that's fine. I'm fine with that. I think that's really I think that's really important. But I also think there is somewhere for kind of instant data journalism to be out there when, when, a, when a big event happens. So we have this little toolkit of quick instant tools as well. We can use to visualize something and get it out there. Mm-hmm. But often we find, often just like, the right spike at the right time is is what gets picked up, and that's what right. that's that's the, what people the people immediacy. Are. Yeah, those are the things that go viral. Yeah, very good. Well, I think we're out of time. But uh, Simon, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great to see you again. Thanks for having me, John. Sweet to see. Yes, thanks everyone for tuning in to this week's episode. Um, have a great holiday season. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Jump Statistical Discovery Software from SAS. Jump, spelled J M P, is an easy to use tool that connects powerful analytics with interactive graphics. The drag and drop interface of Jump enables quick exploration of data to identify patterns, interactions, and outliers. Jump has a scripting language for reproducibility and interfacing with R. Click on this episode's sponsored link to receive a free info kit that includes an interview with data viz experts Kaiser Fung and Alberto Cairo. In the interview, they discuss information gathering, analysis, and communicating results.